and welcome back to Poldark Podcast, where we talk all things Poldark Saga. Before we get started, we should probably introduce ourselves. My name is Rita, and I live in England. You can find me on Tumblr at Princess of Poldark, and I tweet at Rita Bites. And I am Michelle. I live in the States. You can find me on Tumblr at Poldark Muses, and I tweet at Musings. Uh, this week's podcast is the second in our book club episodes. We'll be discussing chapters 7 to 10 of book 1 and chapters 1 to 4 of book 2 of The Angry Tide. We really hope you guys are reading along with us. Uh, otherwise, you know, we think the podcasts really won't make much sense <laughs> to you <laughs> uh, if you aren't. But if you haven't, please bear in mind, we're delving into some spoilers for series 4. So uh, if you're trying to avoid them... I'd turn off the podcast right about now. Uh, we love you, of course, but uh, th this just can't be avoided. So Nope. Bye-bye. <laughs> we'll see you later. Okay, so delving into the questions for the book club. Uh, what or who has struck you the most in these six chapters and why? This could be a specific person, storyline, action, and or situation. Prairie Cheesehead said, I would have to say Ross because while everything seems to be fine on the surface, it really isn't. He covers this by engaging in some dangerous and risky behavior. <laughs> that, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> uh, pretty lightly. <laughs> yeah. River Woman Rules says Dwight and Caroline Ennis. Dwight faced so many challenges over the years. You know, you've got Karen Daniels' death, his compare ordeal, and its resulting chronic illnesses, the frustration that he feels over his patients' medical conditions. Then, to have to stand by waiting for baby Sarah's death, knowing he could do nothing to prevent it, uh, was just torture. Uh, yet, Dwight never loses perspective. He never gives in to despair. The man is a marvel. Similarly, Caroline continues to surprise and amaze me. The way she chooses to grieve for her child shows her love and wisdom. It was difficult to leave her husband during this crisis, but she knew the only chance they had to heal as a couple was for her to leave Kilwarren and its sadness. Caroline is my favorite female character. She continues her dynamic development and is never predictable. Um, my homeboy Slam was a very popular answer to this question. <laughs> Michelle Bell said he has a kind of humble nobility about him and the way he handled the events in these chapters. Um, mm. Evil E said that Sam struck me the most. His selfishness in the mind flooding and then his loss of Emma on the same day. He's such a nuanced character and though I'm not supposed to mention it, the TV show really hasn't done his character justice. Reach. Obviously, agree with this. Uh, absolutely addicted. Poldarki put it beautifully when she said that his strength of moral character, his integrity and concern for others, and his devotion to his faith are all very admirable. Sam Khan is a man of integrity and genuine kindness of heart. Mm. So, for me personally, chapter ten. Yeah, I think that's one of my favourite chapters in the entire saga mm -hmm. no matter how many times i read that section <laughs> and i read it quite a lot <laughs> i end up so emotionally devastated by the end that i am usually blubbering along with sam oh i particularly love how well that chapter is structured it begins like a very calm matter-of-fact manner with sam like waking up and praying and discussing like what he had for breakfast that day and who he was talking to and all of his working conditions and his relationship with the fellow miners, which I found fascinating. And it sort of lulls you into this false sense of comfort and monotony. And then suddenly, in the midst of this perfectly ordinary day, like this huge catastrophe strikes. Yeah. I obviously don't know much about the ins and outs of mining, but... I think Winston's description of the action, like of the cold water slowly filling up and like the pitch blackness of all these men like clinging to each other as the water's rising and as they're trying to escape, it's just really intense and very clearly visualized to me. Like I always felt like I knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I just, 
really I really love that Sam like saved the day yeah (laughs) to the extent that everyone survived the flooding obviously because there were still two people dead and I think that lends some kind of realism to the event like a lesser novelist would have just gone for the trope and had had him just save everybody but Winston never sacrifices the realism which I appreciate yeah, it really is an amazing chapter, and one of the reasons why this book in particular is my favorite of the entire saga. Um, for me, it was as River Woman Rules said, um, Dwight and Caroline's loss of little Sarah. And now that I've seen a photo of Gabriella Wilde as Caroline holding a baby, I'm positively doomed uh, when this Horrible. happens. Oh my God. Um her departure from Kilwarren uh, broke my damn heart. I, I felt so completely, I, I felt as helpless as Dwight must have felt when you know, she declares that she needs to leave. What, 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 wait, wait, no, no, come back, come back, come back, come back. Our second question was, Drake has a couple of visitors at Pally's shop. What are your thoughts about his interactions with both? Michelle Bell uh, said that Sam was fleshed out in this scene and in later chapters. He appears to be a sincere and genuinely good person. I'm glad that we are getting to see more of him. Jeffrey Charles, not so sure about. His remark about getting a mistress through me, even though I know this is a period drama, writing is true to the time, etc. Just don't like the idea. In part of the conversation, he comes across as a typical teenage guy, equal parts bravado and testosterone, but he ended the encounter with Drake well by showing that he can look beyond class. Uh, Evil Eve said, poor Drake and Sam pining over their lost loves. <laughs> I feel sorry for the two calm boys. The next visit had a completely different tone, though. Jeffrey Charles made me laugh out loud. His matter of fact, next time I shall take mistress conversation and Drake's adorable and comfortable and bewildered reaction was hilarious. (laughs) I doubted that their friendship would be the same since Jeffrey Charles has gotten all these lofty rich boy ideas at Harrow. But his speech, which concluded the chapter, shows how he's a podarch through and through who will always have a connection to his land and the people who live in it. Yeah. Absolutely addicted Poldarkey said, I found it very interesting how Sam is worried, concerned for Drake taking a wife as well as his pining for Morwenna, when Sam is doing the same thing, pining for (laughs) Emma. Uh, I enjoyed Drake turning the tables on him and asking about Emma. Quote, you have all this concern for my misfortune, but what of your own? End quote. And Sam's response of, quote, we have, we both have a soreness of the heart. End quote. Um, And then Jeffrey Charles, how he has changed. Uh, Drake notices the change in him from a boy to a young man. Was proud of Drake for telling Jeffrey Charles he can't be like his school friends to be disrespectful of women. Maybe you have grown out of my world. (laughs) Yes, Drake, maybe he has. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) The days of the toads in the pond are past. God, those scenes were both just delightfully awkward. <laughs> I love like Sam being a big brother and trying to pull his little brother out of his mopiness. It makes my heart happy. I just love the Khan brother relationship. Yeah. So pure. I was, however, just a tiny little bit miffed about Drake turning the conversation around on Sam. Because at that point, mm-hmm. Sam was pining over a woman who was still kind of available. And it's different to Drake holding on to a relationship with a married woman that ended so many years ago. She's had a baby. Like, dude, come on. Come on. (laughs) It's not the same. Uh, To be clear, I've always found the Jeffrey Charles-Drake relationship kind of odd, and his visit in this chapter reinforced how different they are as people. Mm -hmm. Their lives are going to be very different going forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeffrey Charles- being that classic teenage boy trying to sound as worldly as possible made me cringe so hard. It felt really authentic. How old is he by now, by the way? Because he sounded like he was 45. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I went and checked, and the book covers the years uh, 1798 through 1799. 
Uh, Jeffrey Charles was born in 1784, so he's actually 14 years old at the time. Crazy town! But um, when you think about what life was like back then, um, it really wouldn't be unheard of. You know, the whole, quote, older woman teaches younger man the ways of the world trope. I know. Protect the child! Uh, <laughs> let's see, and one tiny brief show-related comment. I wish we could still have Harry Marcus as Jeffrey Charles for this part of the story. He really brought the character to life and made the relationship between uh, he and Drake plausible, at least, uh, to me at least. Um, Rita, what do you think? Oh, same. Plus, I'd really love to see like his little baby face being like, gonna get a mistress i know <laughs> if you get an old actor doing that it just feels normal and it's, yes it shouldn't it should yeah. not feel normal <laughs> it's weird yeah uh, totally agree it kind of reminds me of you know when you're watching uh soap operas you know, like typical soap operas and you know the character they have a child character playing you know one of the kids and then it's like the next day they bring in uh, an older actor because they, they want to age up this character really fast. It's kind of like, but, but, but wait, wait a second. <laughs> you were just a toddler. How did this happen? <laughs> How did you become 17 overnight? But uh, anyway. <sighs> just another aspect of Poldark time. We will have yes! to get used to. Yes, yes. So our next question was, we see and hear a lot from Ozzy in this section. His plotting to rid himself of Morwenna and his visit to Notary Pierce, etc. What are your thoughts about his scheming? Michelle Bell says, wretched, wretched man. And Rowella, what the fuck is her story? Why would anyone, anyone choose to sleep with this guy? Just incredible. Uh, Evil E says, what a pig. <laughs> Thank God for Dwight, <laughs> who completely took down Ozzy's argument that Marwenna should be committed to a mental asylum. I bet the renewal of his affair with Roella will be his undoing, especially now that Arthur has caught them in the act. Dun dun dun! Perichis had said, There are two things that separate Ozzy from George Willoggan. First, I don't think George ever slept with anyone else while he was married to Elizabeth, even when he was angry with her. The second is that Ozzy can't afford to have henchmen on his payroll to do all his dirty work for him. And I think that's why he will never be respected or feared. I kind of get the impression that people consider Osborne Whitworth a joke. He's not very good at scheming because he's so selfish and that gets in the way of his end goal. I don't know what else to say about Ozzy that hasn't already been said. He's vile, he's disgusting, he's vain and he's selfish. He's delusional <laughs> and self-righteous. Ozzy is like the Georgian, Georgian Donald Trump minus the Twitter account. But I'm sure if Twitter existed in Georgian England, Ozzy would be sending out 3am rage tweets about everyone who has wronged him right from the comfort of his own gold-plated toilet. Similar to Trump, he also cheats on his wife a lot. Oh, uh, yeah. Very apt. Okay. Moving on, um, absolutely addicted Poldarkey said, oh, what a piece of work this guy is. Lying to Morwenna, you're playing cards with poor dying Pierce. Ugh. Pathological liar even to himself. On the one hand, he blames Roella for using her vile feminine lures, yet after using poor dying Pierce as his front, <laughs> then can't wait to beat feet to Roella's door. Uh, <laughs> quote, unquote. <laughs> nice, nice pun. Um... Well, he's met his match with Rorella. She's no dummy, and she's gotten Ozzy to pay. Uh, you know, I got nothing to add on this, uh, except for Christian Brassington, who plays Whitworth <laughs> so effing well, posted the most hilarious tweet yesterday. It's a photo of what appears to be an ice cream pop shaped like a foot with the following sentence. Do they still make these? Asking for a friend. <laughs> Ah! Oh my god, dude! Dude! Oh my god, well played, well played, sir. Well played. Tweet then... of the year. So, Sahi pops by Nampara for a visit, and he and Ross discuss the war. And a dinner party happening at Trenwith. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, Michelle Bell uh, says, interesting how history is woven into the story. I did not appreciate that so much in my prior reads of the series. I was more hung up on the romance storylines. Honey, you and me both. Love we all. Yes. Uh, let's see. Evil E said, uh, what is it with men called Hugh being infatuated with Demelza? <laughs> I know, right? Every time I read Sir Hugh, I'm like, wait, which Hugh? Which, which Hugh are we talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Ross obviously just discussed the war and the trend with dinner party to keep Sir Hugh from being alone with Demelza. Um I found the affair with the drunk pigs altogether more interesting than their conversation. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about the drunk pigs. <laughs> Don't get your pigs drunk, kids. No, not do a not good idea. Do not do this at home. No. no. Absolutely addicted. Podaki said, one thing that really bugs me about him is his conceit. Does he really honestly believe someone as young, vibrant, and lovely as she would or could ever be attracted to someone like him? I wonder, is he like... Is he likely a true representation of many a titled man of the era? Uh, oh, for sure, girl. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it amazing when I'm reading other novels of these older men, um, you know, really older men who are you know, marrying these young women, you know, mainly for their money and dowry, um, thinking that these women are like madly in love with them you know in some cases maybe that's true but i think in most of the cases it was just something that was done as part of the patriarchal society that existed back then i mean yeah. ugly white male entitlement still lives on <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> you think maybe a little tiny bit a little bit yeah um I kind of think Sir Hugh is just a ropey plot device given to us, <laughs> given to us this chapter. He has exposition and historical clarification to deliver, and that's what he does. So, <laughs> the French Revolutionary War continues. This time, Napoleon has decided to invade Egypt, uh, in theory, to threaten British India. I'm guessing because of the Suez Canal situation, or before, well, it's not the Suez Canal. What do you call it when it's just like the Nile? <laughs> there must have been like a canal situation before. Like, I don't know. Oh, it, you know, it's just that, that peninsula. So the Suez Peninsula. Yeah. Um, you know, it was the major it... gateway between the Mediterranean and the Indian Sea at that point. So, anyway, a huge battle broke out between. Major Nelson and Napoleon and the Royal Navy comes out on top. I guess, yay? It depends. Like <laughs> Britannia rules the waves. Um, yay! <laughs> yay, imperialism! No. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a really significant turning point in the war and led to its conclusion in 1802, a couple of years after the conclusion of this novel. Yes. And I had to go check about the canal, um, and it, it wasn't built uh, it, it, until the 19th century, mid-19th century. Yeah, I, I know I'm, I'm being a bit pedantic, but I can't help it. Do it. Um, Correct me. <laughs> uh, but you are absolutely right. It was one of the reasons uh, to have the battle was to weaken and cut off access to, the British, to British India. Uh, for the Brits. Um, and also, side note, it was during this campaign that the Rosetta Stone, which is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life, uh, it, it was discovered during this campaign, and it started the field of Egyptology. So, hashtag history nerd. Give oh, us man. all the history, Winston. <laughs> And, you know, you could throw in those care other characters and their love turmoils. Every Ross now who? And then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And speaking of which, Ross, Ross, Ross. Uh. <laughs> Fishing? Visiting Trendwith and bumping into Elizabeth? What the fuck, dude? What are your thoughts, peoples? Uh, Michelle Bell, who, by the way, yay, another 1L Michelle in the universe. Woohoo! Anyway, Michelle <laughs> says, uh, to me, the fishing scene demonstrated that Ross is restless and out of sorts with Demelza, but also with life in general. Maybe part of it is his getting older, 
his getting caught in the riptide and how he dealt with it, I think, is meant to signify his life, etc. But I don't know if I got what the writer was trying to convey. What were his? What were your thoughts in that section? Uh, meanwhile, bump, Ross bumping into Elizabeth. Unintended word choice pun given past events between the two. <laughs> well done. Well done. Um, I am 100% over Elizabeth and would be very happy if she never appeared in the books wow. again. <laughs> Damn. Speak your truth, girl. Speak your truth. Uh, she goes on to say, Ross asks about Valentine and she tells him to forget about it. As <laughs> if. She tells the guy Valentine may be his, and then she wants him to forget about it because that would be more convenient, better for her, which has always been true. Which leads to my next thought. Why is why did she ever tell him in the first place? What did she expect him to do with that information? Elizabeth is a narcissist and destructive to everyone around her, yet she expects to receive a pass because she's beautiful, well-bred, and charming. Spare me. I'd rather hang with Prudy and Judd. Oh my god, you went in. You went in. She sure did, holding nothing back. Evil Eve said, The string of events felt kind of surreal. First the fishing, which was a classic example of one of the dreamlike chapters Winston Graham writes, where the characters are completely connected with nature. The chapter after Ross and Demelza first sleep together and Demelza spends the day in the fields amongst wildflowers comes to mind. Ross being lost in the vallow, helpless to its pull but trying to fight against it anyway could be interpreted as a bit of a metaphor about life and fate i also enjoyed his reflection of the time when he found himself in a rip current back when he was a teenager too then he randomly shows up at trenwith <laughs> elizabeth's reaction summed it up pretty well my god what are you doing here you must be mad <laughs> same liz same yeah it felt like another Another reiteration of the churchyard scene in the previous book. Yeah. Let's hope this is the last time Ross creeps up on Elizabeth when she's alone. Yeah. Dude, Work. I do not like this this creepy Ross aspect of his personality. That that shit just needs to stop, okay? Let me just show up like when you're alone in the dark. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, it actually kind of echoes the... You know, in the series three, when Ross creeps up to Trenwith the the day that or the night that Elizabeth gives birth, I always thought that scene was really just so ugh, creepy, just creepy. So you know, okay, way to um, just double down on the the hashtag creepy Ross aspect of his personation. Uh, let's see. River Woman Rule says, uh, The fishing story is my favorite in The Angry Tide. It is strong enough to stand alone and works beautifully on several levels. First, I love how it explores the camaraderie between Ross and the miners. Who but Ross among the gentry would go right, would go night fishing with the villagers? But oh my god, the Velo incident is what makes the story so special for me. The imagery is tactile. I'm there on the beach with Paul Daniel, fearing for Ross's safety. And the first time I read this, my heart was in my throat. Knowing he wasn't supposed to resist the current, Ross still struggled. Even in his, this situation, he is just unable to to let it or he's let unable. it go. Oh God, you did it! Don't do that. <laughs> it's gonna be stuck in my head for the rest of the day. Sorry, you know, but uh, he's unable to just go with the flow. Uh, thankfully, Paul and Ellery yanked him back in like a big fish. Uh, so for me, the Velo is a powerful metaphor. In the midst of his struggle, Ross reflects on this, his life and finds peace of mind. Unfortunately, he can't hold on to it. At the end of book one, Ross Poldark, Ross realizes that he is finally and against all odds happy. Returning home from Trenwith, he thinks, just ahead in the immediate future, there is waiting an open door and a warm house, comfortable chairs, and quietness and companionship. This is all I ask of God. Let me hold it. Let me hold it. Time and again, just as he does in the Velo, Ross finds solace only to have it snatched away. I love his character. I just want to give him a hug and his hey. Happy ever after. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, hashtag I'm old. So I don't get some of these. Uh, these. I think it's like a romance romance novel term. I wouldn't have known if I don't read so many Goodreads reviews. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I was like, and his he? he? <laughs> Everybody's after that he. Yes, go for the he. But yeah, happy ever after. That's something that is not in, not necessarily in Ross's future. It's not very Poldarky, is it? No, no. Not at all. Absolutely addicted. Poldarky said the fishing midlife crisis situation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Um, trying to do the things he did as a young man and he comes close to drowning. <laughs> yeah. Wicked bad. Uh, good thing he is an experienced Cornish swimmer. And then to show up at Trenwith. There's a whole bunch of question marks. Another yeah. questionable behavioral moment for Ross Poldark, where literally, uh, as a reader, you're yelling aloud, What are you doing? <laughs> and for the first time, I was in total agreement with Elizabeth. Her reaction of, My God, what are you doing here? was totally understandable. Oh, I'm glad we're all on the same page with oh this. Oh my god, yes. Oh my god. And I could <laughs> I could actually picture I could actually picture uh absolutely addicted Poldarkies because I've had the chance to meet her in person. I could picture her <laughs> reading her book, just go What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> you crazy lunatic man, what are you doing? Oh, so I, I, I agree with everyone. Like Ross yeah. has always had this kind of reckless and impulsive streak. But I think the whole fishing thing. And to a certain extent, the visit to Trenwith isn't fueled by either of those personality tra- personality traits. I think <clears throat> Ross is in the angry tide, is really having a midlife crisis and is coming to terms with his own mortality and his growing age for possibly the first time. Mm. I think this was set up very obviously in the very first chapter of the novel but it's continued throughout with little callbacks to the first novel we even had a callback to when ross went swimming naked (laughs) one of my personal favorite scenes yes Uh, uh, mine too um and (laughs) and, uh i know we're not supposed to talk about film that kind of thing but please 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 do it again (laughs) (laughs) probably a bit chilly (laughs) do it again yeah uh, yeah. And we've seen like his thoughts manifest themselves with Ross doing things to prove he's still like, quote, got it. <laughs> Just so <laughs> tragic. <laughs> like when he was using that, he was like, I can carry this gigantic covering up by myself. I'm good. I can do this. I can do anything. I'm Superman. Uh, and I think the visit to Trenwith was just like a nostalgia fueled detour. I think perhaps seeing Jeffrey Charles in London has made him miss Francis a little bit. And, well, it seems conceivable to me, so he's gone back to creep like a stalker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the explanation for his actions, but do I approve? Hell no. <laughs> it was incredibly stupid, especially because tensions with George were finally kind of ebbing. And then he decided to risk all that to fulfill his midlife crisis. I'm just incredibly worried. He will definitely cause further troubles and get himself into a world of pain later in the novel because, you know, things tend to escalate with Ross. Really? (laughs) He can be such an idiot. (laughs) But I still. That's why we had had Ross the idiot trademarked, remember? That's true, that's true. Um, Still coming back to me now. Yeah, but I, I I still love him. God, I'm hopeless. He's a lovable idiot. I'm hopeless. Okay, um, our next question is, we meet Monk Adderley. Uh, what do we think of him so far? Monk Adderley fits all the standard tropes of the classic rogue figure in a romance novel. Quote, he drank, he gambled, he womanized, all in the most exquisite taste. He belonged to the best cubs and was remarked as a figure ever. Yeah, just in that in now those two sentences they've they've packed in so much tropey goodness. I know. <laughs> I'm like, yes, here for it. Um, in that context. Yeah. In that context of a romance novel, they leave me waiting for like the love of a cute blue stocking to reform him. I'm like, who's gonna change this man? But I'm guessing that because it's a Poldark book and you know, 
we can't yeah. have nice things. He's actually <laughs> a gigantic prick. Like yes. a very entitled prick, considering that he's about as much of a gentleman as George is. <laughs> um, having said that, the bitchy part of me really loved that his the only jewel he has refused was against his own father because he wasn't a gentleman. <laughs> I thought that was some epic shade. Like he could be such a fun villain. <laughs> oh god. That is hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely addictive Hardaki said you can sense right away we aren't going to like this character. <laughs> I got the feeling Russ wasn't impressed. Perhaps Adley purposely made an appearance in the gardens after possibly seeing from inside Trenwith. Possible mm-hmm. to test the waters with lovely Elizabeth. Yeah. Or is he familiar with Ross Poldark? I think he enjoys confrontational situations. <laughs> yeah, could be. Uh, Michelle Bell says, a dandified creep gives me the willies. Nicely said. Uh, Evilly says, I smell trouble. The way Winston Graham introduced him in Ross's tense confrontation with him gave me the impression that this won't be the last we hear from Monk Adderley. And Prairie Cheesehead kind of sums it up in one short, sweet sentence. I think he's an ass. <laughs> <laughs> Succinct, but yes. honest. Okay. <laughs> okay, uh, we have to talk about Sam. Yes, we do. Yes, we, you knew myself. we were going to have to. Ugh. So Sam <laughs> receives a letter. How do you feel about the conclusion of this storyline? Uh, Michelle Bell said, It's a logical conclusion, but talk about beating a character up. Uh, Emma's logic made sense through it. Uh, it made sense, though it was murder reading that passage. I appreciate that it took a lot of effort to write in the local dialect, but it was tough to slog through. Uh, Evil E said, my heart is broken. Many tears were shed. I somehow don't don't feel satisfied with this conclusion to Sam and Emma's relationship, even though it is truthful to the unsatisfying and imperfect way that real-life relationships can conclude. But I just wanted better for them. I wanted them to be happy and free to love each other in spite of the obstacles keeping them apart. Absolutely addicted. Poldaki said, Oh, Sam, poor man. I was heartbroken for him. Literally wept while reading Emma's letter. There was a part of me, I must admit, that blamed Stamelza. If she would have left well alone, question mark. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Emma was right. She seemed to be very realistic and protective about the two of them not being compatible. Oh my god, this is making me so sad, you guys. Oh, poor Rita. I knew, I knew this was going to be a tough one for you, and I was like, oh, poor baby. That that letter was that letter was effing brutal. Was effing brutal, man. That entire chapter, I was just like, yeah. why am I having to read this, Winston? You're breaking my damn heart. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, this will be a surprise to nobody that I found this passage of the novel incredibly distressing. <laughs> I love these two characters and individuals, and they were so wonderful together, and they had so much potential. So yeah, I cried along with Sam, with Sam as I read her letter I think I think the chapter was beautifully written and a real testament to Winston Graham's prowess as a writer that he can take a like jumbled up badly spelled confusing passage but like infuse it with so much heartache and it felt really like Emma and I was just yeah it did it did (laughs) so the question was how do I feel about the storyline ending this way and that is incredibly complicated in my head and my heart. So to explain it, I'm going to have to engage in some double think to answer this thoroughly. <laughs> if you're not on your, up on your all well, that's the act of simultaneously accepting two mutual contradictory beliefs as correct. It's from 1984. Part of why I love Sam and Emma so much is because it did end tragically. It makes the whole storyline so much more compelling in a way. And on rereading the novels, I find it all of their interactions kind of bittersweet. 
I also think it makes them uniquely realistic. This is a relationship with the most unique and compelling conflict that couldn't easily be resolved away like all the others. And intellectually, I really appreciate that. Emotionally, though, I am furious at Winston because I think he completely wasted all of this build-up and all of this potential in the storyline, and then he just sort of drops it. Let's face it, that's what happens abruptly, with very little consequence, at the beginning of this book. There are five more novels, five more, and not once is the storyline really alluded to again. Like, it feels just grossly unfair that out of everyone in this damn series, Sam and Emma are the ones who end up screwed over. They're my faves. (laughs) I really, like, kind of... I wonder what the hell happened with this. And if Winston just, like, lost interest or something. I would really just want to talk to him for about good two hours about this. (laughs) I cash it out. (laughs) But, like, you know, anyway, I'm annoyed. (laughs) I am both annoyed and loving the angst of it all. Like, both these two separate things exist in me. I'm a complicated woman. (laughs) I love you, Rita. What I do truly, truly love about Sam, like, he's a kind, generous, and giving person, and he was taken to such a dark place. Yeah. And... I keep thinking about the like the following quotes that kind of capture that quote. It came to him to think that perhaps he should not have struggled and swam so hard this afternoon. <laughs> and followed by the fact this following quote, I don't think he ever really recovers from this heartbreak. Quote, she was quite startled at the empty look Sam gave her, as if something had washed away from him forever in the flooded mine. Oh, God. Like, he is dead inside. That's where this ends. (laughs) I'm never going to be able to be happy. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, you know, for this this horrible mine um, incident to happen on the exact day that he gets this letter from Emma and he had been thinking that, you know, Hey, it's been a year. Maybe, you know, something could happen, you know, cause she said that she wanted to take a year and, you know, so, you know, he had a little hope in his heart and it was absolutely decimated, just decimated, uh, by this, this letter. It's like the, the, it's like the, the final nail, and um poor sam you know i was just re i was just looking up the letter because i have been listening to the audiobook and so i haven't read the letter in an actual book um since the first time i went through or first time i read the novels and uh y'all are right this is this is a tough one to read uh but um just the, the some of the sentiment that she has in here it just it it just breaks your heart. It breaks your heart, you know. And I love the fact that she just keeps saying, Sam, dear Sam, dear Sam. You know, it's just, you can hear her saying this to him. Yeah. And it's just, oh God, I have to put the book down because my, my throat's starting to close up. So you It's just, not bad. The world is cruel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay, well, as you compose yourself, um, I'll go with our next question. <laughs> Thank um, you. the, you're welcome. Uh, the parallels uh, to the saga's previous novels are continued. Uh, which do you think were the most effective and why? Uh, River Woman Rule says um, as you, it continues to explore the theme of frustrated love and all its ramifications. Drake and Sam's despair over their unattainable loves reflect the heartache that Ross felt after Elizabeth's rejection. Sam is sad but has his religion to see him through. Like Ross, Drake is emotionally paralyzed. Hard work is Ross's salvation and his prescription for Drake, but all three remain scarred for years. 
Also, we see the horrific effects of baby Julia and Sarah's deaths on their respective parents. Ross had a breakdown and, I believe, never completely recovered. I'm with you. Uh, part of the problem was he was unable to share or discuss his grief in any meaningful way that would have helped him heal. Although no less devastated, both Dwight and Caroline were able to devise coping mechanisms that allowed them to recover. Michelle Bell said the saddest and most effective was Dwight and Caroline losing Sarah, just as Ross and Demelza lost Julia. The passage was delicate and carefully written, heartbreaking for all concerned. Eva Levy said, A parallel hit me out of nowhere while I was reading book two, chapter three, and it blew my mind. Drake, Marwenna, and Rosina's love triangle is following the same pattern as Ross, Elizabeth, and Demelza's. A young man recently returned from an overseas escapade to discover that his first love is going to be married to another man, throws himself into his work, and isolates himself, which concerns his family members who try to convince him to move on. So he decides to marry a young woman stuck between social classes whose company he enjoys but he doesn't love. It is legit the same sequence of <laughs> events. Winston Graham, please explain. How do you write like this? He's hitting you with those hashtag themes. Oh, yes. my God. Perry Cheese had said, I think the Drake, Moena, Rosina parallel to the Ross, Elizabeth, Demelza relationship is interesting in that while both Drake and Ross were pining for someone they could not have, the interesting part is the difference in how they handled it. I don't want to say that Drake actually likes being depressed and miserable, but sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> with your sister. Ross, on the other hand, decides to get on with his life and eventually ended up with Demelza, who is the love of Ross's life. I don't want to get ahead of the actual part of the story we are focusing on, so I will say nothing more until the part of the story comes up. I know what you're thinking. Oh yeah! Absolutely addicted Poldarkey said, I believe the parallel of Dwight and Caroline losing Sarah versus Ross and Demelza losing Julia was the most effective. Ross knows exactly what Dwight and Caroline are going through. He understands why Dwight hid Sarah's condition from Caroline, which was similar to Ross not telling Demelza that Julia had died. In each situation, it would have destroyed their wives. Even though it would have been the truth, and they deserved to know, it would have meant witnessing their breakdowns, and possibly worse. So both men felt they were protecting their wives. I love this close relationship between Ross and Dwight. It's a testament to their characters. I think the friendship with Dwight, Dwight brings out the best in Ross. They understand one another so well. They He's really such a do. good influence. I'd love me some Dwight Ross. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, Dwight Ross. Uh, I, that <laughs> sounds kind of shippy to me. <laughs> uh, the next question was, can you pick out a passage that I'm just grinning? Um, She's just running out... past that. Just run, <laughs> run past it. Yeah. <laughs> can you pick out a passage that strikes you as particularly profound or interesting? Please share it and why. Uh, Michelle Bell says the last two paragraphs of Book 1, Chapter 9. I've failed you, Demelza said. Perhaps we failed each other, Ross said, replied. Not lightly, but almost as if it were in passing, as if it must be an observed and accepted fact between them. Perhaps it must. Perhaps he was right. But it should not be so said. It should not be so said. For some reason, I find that haunting. Absolutely addicted Podaki picked the following quote. But this was a double heartbreak for Sam. He had wanted Emma for himself to have and to hold in sickness and in health so long as they both should live. But also, he had wanted her as a soul one for God. Hers was the most precious soul of all to him. Uh, the reason I chose this passage gives some insight into Sam's heart and mind. Not only did he want to marry Emma, he wanted to convert her. It had to be such a blow for him, not only to his male ego, but also as a religious man. He felt a failure twofold. But a reality check as well, because you cannot change a person, no matter how, quote, genuine your reasoning, or how pure one's heart is. Nor was she a, quote, prize to be won for God. Sorry, Sam. Yep. Fair enough. Uh-huh. 
Uh, Eva Levy said, this passage when Roscoe's swimming was actually really beautiful and highlights one of the reasons why I love Winston Graham's writing. He captures the lives of real people in Cornwall, people who lived and worked to the rhythm of the seasons. It feels more real and honest than most historical fiction, which only focuses on the surface, drawing rooms and balls and gowns and courtship, whereas Winston Graham cuts down deep into humanity and life and love and nature and society. I also love the reflection on Ross's character and what sets him apart from most upper-class men of his time, even the most romantic heroes, quote-unquote, of historical fiction. He is connected to the working-class people. He is of the earth, not the ballrooms and parlors. That is his natural element. That is why Demelza is his, quote, soulmate, end quote. Not in the sense that their relationship is perfect and it was love at first sight, but in the sense that they are reflections of each other and therefore have an intense connection which they lack with anyone else. Quote, as soon as he was swimming, he wondered why he had not done this before. It was not merely his absence in London. Years had passed since he'd come fishing in this way. It was different from the polite bathing of daytime, the walks on the beach with the children, the gallops on horseback with Demelza. This was essentially masculine, essentially earthy, if one could use that expression, essentially utilitarian and plebeian, of the common folks who tilled the soil and searched the sea and lived plain and hard. Like his father, and unlike Francis and Francis's father, he had always had something in common with this world. It was a part of himself, just as much as his innate breeding as a poldark was part of himself. That he had married a miner's daughter had confirmed the union, not created it. Beautiful. Yeah. River Woman Rules said this would have to be Ross's observation to Verity. Quote, but now and then you do not have all the controls of your feelings that you should have. And then thoughts and feelings surge up in you like an angry tide. What a sentiment. I used to berate Winston Graham for not placing Demelza just outside the door bringing tea or something so she could hear this. Anyway, although Ross's feelings best epitomise this imagery, I think anger is an element in all the storylines and backgrounds. Demelza's description of the weather in Chapter 1, just before Ross's return home, see everything that is to follow? Quote, Yesterday the weather had been in a vile rage. It had cursed and sworn and quarrelled with everyone and thrown the crockery. Now it had blown itself out. The temper was over, and in the reaction it seemed tranquil in its exhaustion. I love that quote. Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. tide is reflected in Morwenna's hopelessness, in Sam's hurt at not winning Emma, in Ozzy's deranged trance, in George's tightly constrained frustrations, and even in Will Grace's angry flooding. Damn, that's deep. Okay, question or observation of your choice? Ivalee said, I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to see what happens next, as I have gone into this book mostly blind, excepting a few spoilers I'm already aware of. I can feel a storm brewing in these pages, something big is coming at the end, but I don't know what. All I know is that it will most definitely end in tears. (laughs) Can confirm. There will be more tears. Yes. Uh, River Woman Rule says, I don't know if this has already been discussed, but one of the things that Winston Graham does particularly well is provide comedic relief when the drama gets too heavy. In the early books, he does this, he usually does this through Judd's hilarious antics, like scaring mourners at his premature wake, disrupting poor Reverend Odge's sermons, preaching hellfire and brimstone to passersby when he's as drunk as a skunk. In this book, the drunken pigs ebb and flow provide some relief. It's so good to see Ross laugh, even if only for a few moments. Winston Graham certainly has a flair for comedy. And the ebb and flow part two, unfortunately. (laughs) Yes, yes, ebb and flow part two. Michelle Bell said, of the four main characters, only George is faithful. He may be a son of a bitch, but he does not cheat on his significant others. That we know of. We we, we don't know if, if he... Never mind. I'm just searching for bad things to say about George. Sorry. I don't think he's he's that much of a sexual person enough to cheat. To yeah, honest. you know, that is a really good point. That's a really good point. 
Number two was, I realised that Elizabeth wanted to possess Russ. I have his affection on her trophy shelf in the same way George wanted to possess Elizabeth and add her to his list of acquisitions. Elizabeth did not love Ross. She only wanted him to love, admire, and want her. To his credit, George apparently does care for Elizabeth, and his feelings for her grow over time. The same cannot be said of Elizabeth's feelings for George, at least in this part of the story. Yeah, I I have to wonder, you know, if if Elizabeth has the capacity for the deep love that we see um like Demelza having for Ross and Ross for Demelza uh even George for Elizabeth anyhow I expect to hear about that in asks <clears throat> anyway uh, <laughs> uh Prairie Cheesehead said uh this is something that's been on the back of my mind throughout the Poldark saga but it didn't come to mind until the scene where Sir Hugh comes to Nampara his stepmother Connie has a lot of dogs and for some reason Whenever the topic of Connie Bedruggan's many dogs comes up in the book, I think of the Bumpus's hounds in the Christmas story. <laughs> oh my God. For those of you that have not seen this movie. Oh, the Bumpus's hounds. Uh, she says, even the Bumpus hounds theme song pops up into her head. I have this bit of music from a completely unrelated movie stuck in my head while I'm picturing all of these dogs running amok inside a country estate. The only thing missing is Darren McGavin cursing at the dogs and a Christmas dinner disaster. If money were no object and I was producing my own adaptation of the Poldark Saga for TV, the Bodrugan Hounds would be included, and yes, they would have their own theme song. I'm so <laughs> down for this. Oh yes, my Bedruggan god. Hounds. Oh my god. Have you heard, have you seen that? No. Seen the movie? Oh god, watch it. It's hilarious it's probably i mean my if favorite. there are dogs i am there that is how <laughs> i live but yes bumpus's hounds absolutely gotta experience it so that was it for book club it's now time for poldark news poldark news poldark news Sound the klaxon, we have Eleanor Tomlinson news. <coughs> Around 48 hours ago, Bert announced that his dog mum had answered all of my personal prayers and started her own Instagram account. So what? go follow it immediately at Eleanor Tomlinson and support the Queen of Poldark. Yes! That same day, the news of her debut album broke. Woohoo! Uh, Tales from Home is a folk album that Eleanor worked on with Poldark composer and all-around wonderful person Ann Dudley. It features covers from Simon and Garfunkel, Carol King, and even Bonnie Raitt's. Oh my god, the song that she's doing of Bonnie Raitt's is one of my all-time favorite songs. <laughs> love it! I, and I love Bonnie Raitt as well. She's one of my favorite She's one of my favorite artists to sing because her voice suits my range pretty pretty damn well. Um, but, uh, oh my God. As, and there's also a number of traditional Irish and Scottish folk songs too. So it's out May 4th. But why wait? You can pre-order on iTunes or Amazon, peepas. Do it. Yes. Or do what okay. I did and pay for the MP3 and also a CD, even though I haven't bought a CD since like 2002. <laughs> I am all in, people. This oh is going to be goodness. worth your money. There you go. Um, also, a uh, little Aiden Turner news. Um, cool magazine website, which uh, if you go to, look for the little pause symbol up at the top of the page to turn off the music that comes on when you open the page. <laughs> Just an FYI, because you'll be going absolutely crazy um, after a while. But uh, Cool Magazine has an article uh, dated from January, uh, and it goes into detail about Turner's um, West End debut and talks a bit more about the play itself. Uh, it also talks about the director, and it gives uh, some history about um, Aiden's uh, on-stage performances uh, prior to the launching of his film career. So 
It's a really nice article. Um, I will post a link to it um, on Tweet and Tumblr so that y'all can check it out. But again, look for the pause symbol at the top of the page. You've Just got to do it, people. Trust and recognize. Okay, well, we have reached the end of this week's podcast. <laughs> Uh, but thank you for listening and tune in in two weeks for discussions of book two, chapters five through 12. It's a pretty big chunk, so we figure two weeks should give you enough time to get her done. If you want to participate in the discussion, and please do, uh, we would love to hear from more of you. Uh, the questions are up on our Tumblr and Facebook pages. Uh, please send your responses to PoleDarkPodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Tumblr for more updates. Our name is Poldark Podcast on all of them. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. We try to keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> we love it when you guys get in touch. And please, please, please give us a review on iTunes. Yes. Give us five stars. You know we yes. do that. Yes, we, we do. do. We do. We do. <laughs> okay. So we'll see you all in two weeks. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye. Every time I breathe, I take